Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, so we've mentioned quite a number of times that we have an extensively long list of, of to-dos on the podcast. There are uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of listeners submitted suggestions, and then we have our own to-do lists, and they are both very long. And sometimes, sort of like when you are uh, you have access to hundreds of channels on the television, it just feels like nothing's on. <laughs> I scroll through all those things, and there are so many great ideas on there, but none of them are quite catching my attention that day and you and I both know from experience that the best episodes come from when we're really engaged with what we're talking about yeah if you're just not in the mood for a topic even if it's an awesome topic it just won't turn out as well as if you wait a little while and let it become the thing that catches your mood right and some of the things I was in the mood to talk about were on hold until uh stuff could come in from the library so I was browsing around the internet and found a post on rejected princesses about Dr. Vera Peters, who was one of the foremost oncologists in the world in her time. Not only was she one of the only female oncologists in the world, she completely changed the standard of care for two different types of cancer. And she was one of rejected princesses' modern worthies. And those are usually about a woman who died within the last 50 years. The Rejected Princess's Modern Worthies posts tend to be pretty brief, so this one hits the highlights. Dr. Peters helped revolutionize the treatment of both breast cancer and Hodgkin's lymphoma, but at the time that she did, her work was largely ignored and dismissed. So naturally, immediately, I wanted to know a lot more about this person and what she did. Therefore, we're going to have a whole episode on her today. Hooray! Uh, We'll do the usual setup on early life. Uh, Mildred Vera Peters was born in Rexdale, Ontario, on April 28th of 1911. She was one of seven children. And her parents were dairy farmers. Uh, her mother was also a teacher. Vera and her siblings worked on the farm starting at a very early age, particularly after the sudden death of their father. Her first education was in a one-room schoolhouse. She finished high school at 16, and she wanted, she knew already, that she wanted to become a doctor. She was too young to start medical school, though, so she enrolled in the University of Toronto to study math and physics, and then she transferred to the medical program the following year. She worked summer jobs to save up her money, and her brother and her sisters helped pay her way as well. While she was working as a waitress on a tourist ship, she met Ken Lobb, who was the man she would later marry, and they would eventually have two daughters together. While she was still in medical school, her mother was treated for breast cancer. And after a recurrence, she was treated by Dr. Gordon Richards, who at that point was one of the most respected doctors in the field of radiation oncology, which at that point was pretty early uh, in, in its development. Dr. Richards was also one of the doctors that Vera studied under. And Vera's mother, uh, unfortunately, did die of her cancer, which is one of the things that led Vera to want to study the disease later in her life. Dr. Peters graduated from medical school in 1934 and went on to a residency in radiology at Toronto General Hospital. At this point in medicine, there was no official training protocol or certification for radiotherapy. So Dr. Peters apprenticed with Dr. Richards, and she started working at the Ontario Institute of Radiotherapy in 1935. And she continued to work with Dr. Richards right up until his death in January of 1949. Before we get into more of the specifics of her medical work, here's a caveat. 
Dr. Peters did really groundbreaking work in the treatment of two different cancers, and we're going to talk about them enough to give a sense of why her work was so important. But this is absolutely not meant to be a thorough exploration of either cancer, uh, even or even of the human body systems that they involved. This is also definitely not a thorough examination of how these cancers are treated today because the whole field of oncology has evolved tremendously since Dr. Peters retired in 1976. So this is much more about how the developments that Dr. Peters helped launch changed the way medicine was working at the time than about the diseases specifically or how they're treated today. So Dr. Peters' first groundbreaking work was in the treatment of Hodgkin's disease, which was before that point considered to be incurable. Now more commonly known as Hodgkin's lymphoma, this is a cancer that affects the lymphatic system. It's named for Dr. Thomas Hodgkin, who described it in 1832. The major difference between Hodgkin's lymphoma and the more common non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is that Hodgkin's lymphoma involves large abnormal cells called Reed-Sternberg cells, while these cells are not present in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Between its first description in 1832 and 1902, no doctors reported any successful treatment of Hodgkin's lymphoma at all. The first somewhat successful treatment, was, which was described in 1902, was the use of x-rays on the involved lymph nodes. And while this did shrink the affected nodes somewhat, it didn't cure the disease. It maybe bought people a little time. There were a few advances between 1902 and 1939 when Dr. René Gilbert of Geneva, Switzerland, described treating the affected lymph nodes with radiation. He treated both the affected lymph nodes and other parts of the body that were not apparently affected. And while some of his patients did improve, many relapsed, and he didn't think of any of them as having been cured. Dr. Peter's mentor, Dr. Richards, who we mentioned earlier, installed a 400-kilovolt radiation machine at the Ontario Radiotherapy Institute in 1937, just a couple of years before Dr. Gilbert's description of his method. This was a higher-voltage machine than what Dr. Gilbert was using, and Dr. Richard used this machine to treat his patients for a variety of cancers. Dr. Richard's method with Hodgkin's lymphoma was to use extended field radiation on the affected lymph nodes and adjacent nodes. Although some accounts describe this irradiation of nearby nodes as prophylactic, it wasn't really to prevent disease. It was to kill cancerous cells that had already spread to adjacent nodes, but weren't yet detectable. At first, Dr. Peters primarily worked under Dr. Richard's supervision. She was kind of apprenticing to him. But as she became more experienced as a doctor, she began to treat patients on her own as well. In 1947, uh, after 10 years of treating lymphoma patients with the 400-kilovolt machine, Dr. Richards made an observation to Dr. Peters. It seemed to him that some of their patients were surviving a long time with no relapse, even though Hodgkin's lymphoma was supposedly incurable. And he asked her how she wanted to evaluate their work on the matter. So there are some people who interpret this as meaning that Dr. Richards should get credit for what happened next. After all, especially at the beginning, he was the one who was successfully treating the patients for their cancer. But what he really did was give Dr. Peters a question to answer. And the work she did to answer that question eventually changed the perception of Hodgkin's lymphoma from being an incurable disease to a curable one. Dr. Peters spent two years studying 113 patients who had been conclusively diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, 
and treated with radiation at the hospital where she worked. She largely did this by hand at her dining room table. She was ready to present her findings to her colleagues in 1949, which was unfortunately after Dr. Richards had already died. Her findings revealed, though, that his theory was right. Their patients were living longer than lymphoma patients at other hospitals. Their five-year survival rate had doubled and their 10-year survival rate had tripled. Patients in stage one, which was the least advanced stage, lived a median of 11.6 years. And she didn't describe any of the patients as cured, but their prognosis was really a lot better and her tone was a lot more optimistic than any of the medical wisdom on Hodgkin's lymphoma at the time. The idea of approaching Hodgkin's lymphoma with the goal of curing it was revolutionary. And even though Dr. Peters had clear, compelling data to back up what she was saying, it took about 10 years for the medical establishment to start taking this concept seriously. Dr. Peters presented a follow-up paper in 1956 that included 291 uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma cases, with all of the data just as solidly pointing to the idea that Hodgkin's disease could be cured, especially in the early stages. But perceptions in the medical field didn't really start to change until Eric C. Eason and Marion H. Russell, using Dr. Peters' data, confirmed her work in their paper, Cure of Hodgkin's Disease. That was in 1963. Uh, it took even longer than that for the idea that Hodgkin's disease could be approached as something that can be cured in a medical textbook. Treatments have continued to advance. Today, especially if it's caught in the early stages, Hodgkin's disease is considered to be one of the most curable adult cancers. Having made these kinds of strides in Hodgkin's disease, Dr. Peters turned her focus to breast cancer, which was personally important to her because of her mother. And we'll talk about that work after a brief ad break. So to get back to Dr. Peters' work with breast cancer, in 1958, the Ontario Cancer Institute at Princess Margaret Hospital opened, and patients and staff from Toronto General, including Dr. Peters and her patients, were transferred there. Uh, as a side note, we're about to talk about breast cancer for a while. And while men can and do get breast cancer, we're really going to be talking about women here because that's the work that Dr. Peters was doing. This, the, all of her focus was on breast cancer treatment in women, not in men. So we're not excluding men for some other reason. That's just the work that she was focused on. So at this point, the overwhelming majority of patients who were diagnosed with breast cancer were treated with a radical mastectomy, also called the Halstead procedure for the doctor who popularized it, almost as soon as they were diagnosed. They would go in for a biopsy, which was done under general anesthesia, and if the lump was cancerous, they'd have the mastectomy before they regained consciousness. This made the possibility of breast cancer particularly terrifying. Women got onto an operating table not knowing if they had cancer or not, and not knowing if they would wake up without a breast or not. The mastectomy itself, which was the standard treatment regardless of whether the cancer had spread beyond one tumor, was a lot more involved than mastectomies typically are today. A radical mastectomy removes more than just the breast. It also removes the pectoral muscles under the breast, along with the lymph nodes under the arm on the same side as the affected breast. This idea was that the cancer was less likely to spread if you literally removed all of the things adjacent to it where it was most likely to spread. And, you know, while these are the places that cancer is most likely to go uh, after appearing in the breast, 
this court was the course of action, regardless of whether cancer had been detected in any of these other places. Needless to say, a radical mastectomy permanently and significantly altered the body. Uh, even after the reconstruction, a woman's chest itself would look a lot different. It would basically be concave because of the loss of the pectoral muscle wall. Over and over again, modern medical papers describe radical mastectomies of the past as, and this is, quote, disfiguring. Such a huge change to such a personal part of the body was psychologically and emotionally damaging for many patients for the rest of their lives. It could also be physically disabling since it removed some of the muscles used to control a person's arm. And the loss of lymph nodes can lead to permanent swelling and an increased likelihood of infections in the arm. Nerve damage was also a really frequent complication. And this is why today radical mastectomy is extremely rare, and it's only performed when there really is cancer in those adjacent tissues. When people have mastectomies today, they're usually what's considered a simple mastectomy, which removes the breast, but leaves at least some of the lymph nodes, or a modified radical mastectomy, which removes the breast and lymph nodes, but only gets into the pectoral muscles if the cancer has actually spread there. Even though a radical mastectomy was a standard of care for breast cancer patients at this point, there were a few people who didn't have them because of other medical conditions or, in a very limited number of cases, the patients who just put their foot down and refused to have more aggressive surgery. These patients had surgeries that conserved more of their breast. It was either a simple mastectomy or a lumpectomy. Unless there was some medical reason why a woman could not have a radical mastectomy, these options were pretty much always against medical advice. Dr. Peter's previous work with lymphoma meant she was particularly insightful when it came to how cancer spread through the lymphatic system. Patients were often referred to her for follow-up radiation treatment after their surgery. And she also had personal experience with how traumatic breast cancer treatment could be after she had lost her mother to the disease in 1933. So she wanted to see if less drastic treatments could prove to be as effective as a mastectomy while still preserving as much of the breast as possible. She published her first work on this subject in 1967, and it was based on comparing the survival rates for women who had been treated uh, for their cancer with different forms of treatment. She studied the record of 7,000 patients who had been treated between 1935 and 1960. 852 of these patients had had their lump removed during their biopsy. 124 of those had radiation as their only follow-up treatment, while the others had some combination of a mastectomy and radiation. What she found was that there was absolutely no difference in the survival time between the women who had just had a lumpectomy and the women who had had a mastectomy. When it came to women with stage 1 and stage 2 breast cancer, in her opinion, the more conservative surgery, which preserved the woman's breast, was just as viable a medical option as a mastectomy. And this was a completely controversial stance at the time. In her words, quote, I was refuted and shunned by most of the outstanding surgeons in the States, except for Dr. George Cryle of Cleveland. She was determined, though, and so she decided to do a case, a case control study of the records from Princess Margaret Hospital. So while she had previously combed through all of the records and looked at them as a whole, this time she controlled for the age of the patients, their other health factors, whether they also had other cancers. She narrowed it down to only patients with stage one breast cancer, and then she meticulously matched up the ones who had a lumpectomy and, radi- and radiation 
with the ones who had a mastectomy and radiation. And to match them up, she looked at their ages, how large the tumor was, and the year that the treatment took place. This gave her 145 pairs, in which the lumpectomy group had no statistically significant difference than the mastectomy group. In fact, the lumpectomy group had slightly better survival than the mastectomy group. In other words, for women with stage 1 cancer, a more conservative treatment that preserved their breasts did not harm their chances of survival. Radical mastectomy was not necessary when the disease had not started to spread. In 1975, she presented these findings at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada meeting in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Their response was really skeptical at best. Two years later, Dr. Peters published an updated version of the paper in an international journal, which gave it more exposure and also came to the exact same conclusions. In that paper, she was really direct in her opinion. She said, quote, as more and more conservative studies ripen, as more and more concerned physicians observe the adverse effects of excessive treatment, as more and more women become armed with knowledge, mastectomy and early breast cancer may become as old-fashioned as bloodletting. Dr. Peters retired from the hospital the year before that revised paper was published, although she maintained a part-time practice and she continued to teach. But gradually, oncologists did start taking a more conservative approach to early-stage breast cancers. Today, women with early-stage breast cancer generally have a mastectomy if there's some medical reason to do so. Dr. Peter's impact on the medical field also went beyond just the specific treatment of these two cancers. And we'll talk about how after a brief ad break. So to return to Dr. Peter's, uh, a lot of people take the idea of patient-centered care to for granted today, even if they've never heard that term specifically. Uh, I know that lots of people have lots of different access to medical care, depending on all kinds of factors, including their income level and their age and their race and lots, lots of different issues. But for the most part, when people go to the doctor, they kind of expect their doctor to treat them like a human being and to listen to them and to explain what's going on. And uh, this was not really how things worked when Dr. Peters started practicing medicine. She was really a forerunner in the idea of listening to a patient's wishes and explaining to them and helping them make decisions about their own treatment. Uh, this whole idea was really far from standard when she was practicing medicine. Yeah, she actually got to know her patients and she helped them make decisions about their own health care rather than just seeing them as a condition to treat and telling them what to do. Another common attitude today is that when you go to the doctor, you should get a treatment that's going to be the right amount to solve the problem, not something that's just going to be so completely aggressive that it's going to blast the problem away, but then also leave you with potentially lots of scars or huge side effects or you know, lots of adverse effects to taking care of the problem. This was also core to Dr. Peter's philosophy as a doctor. She wanted to do the most conservative treatment to get the job done. And it was really different from a lot of what was going on at the time. Obviously, doctors were putting women to sleep to do a biopsy and then taking their entire breast, even in the case of really small tumors that hadn't progressed anywhere. Um, she really wanted to avoid the risks that came of side effects and other complications by doing a more minimal treatment, but still treating the actual problem. And she was also a role model for young women who were interested in becoming doctors, not just because of her success as a doctor, but also because she proved that a woman could be a doctor while also being a wife and mother. And that was something that really needed proving at this point in history. 
She did a lot of her research at home. Since she was compiling her work by hand, she wouldn't have been able to make the breakthroughs that she did otherwise. But outside the of the medical world, she was Mrs. Lobb, mother of two. I think a lot of the other like female forerunners in the world of medicine that we've talked about have been women who eschewed the more traditional, stereotypical feminine side and so it actually was a big deal that in addition to being a doctor, she got married and had children. Uh, all of this work was additionally incredible because at this point, there were hardly any women doctors at all, let alone women doctors who were on the cutting edge of their field, revolutionizing the treatment of multiple diseases. And Dr. Vera Peters became an officer of the Order of Canada in 1978. She was awarded the gold medal from the American Society of Therapeutic Radiology in 1979 and the Woman of Distinction Award from the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation in 1988. Sadly, she died of cancer on October 1st, 1993 at the age of 82. She died at Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto, where she had worked for most of her career. And she was inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame in 2010. It's kind of a side note. There was a play about her called Radical, which was written by Charles Hayter, who was also an oncologist. That actually premiered to a just sell out standing room only crowd at the Toronto Fringe Festival in July 2014. Thank you, Dr. Vera Peters. I know. (laughs) You and I both have family experience with breast cancer. And the fact that somebody said, "Okay, we, we have got to just stop treating women as a a thing to put on a table and remove part of their body without actually talking to them about it. Like, that's a big deal. Yeah, the, I, the idea of um, not being asked questions about treatment is so alien to me that it's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you, I said this to you off mic, and now I'm just going to say it on mic. As I was researching this, I found a citation of that cure for Hodgkin's disease paper. It was like a citation of the paper that was in another, uh, an, another journal. And it cited the male doctor is doctor uh, and the female author of the paper is miss. And I could not figure out whether she was actually a doctor <laughs> when that notation was published or not. Right. Because it is possible that she was credited on the paper, but was not yet a medical doctor. But I sincerely wonder, based on all of the other things that were going on at the time, whether she was discredited as Miss instead of Doctor because she was a woman. Yeah. So that's a mystery that remains to be solved. In the meantime, I think you might have listener mail for us. I do have listener mail. This is another listener mail from our Brown versus Board series. Uh, and it is from Gia. Gia says... Uh, I recently listened to your Brown versus Board of Education and found the Aftermath episode fascinating. I grew up in downtown Boston, and even though I was born in the early 80s, people were still talking about busing in the 90s and early 2000s in horror. Boston is set up in a series of small neighborhoods, which were once full of families and children. It was very common for people, especially children and their mothers, to live their lives wholly in their neighborhood. My grandmother raised four children, worked, shopped, and socialized in a one-square-mile piece of Boston. And back then, that was completely normal. The people of these neighborhoods had neighborhood pride, and until pretty recently, residents were incredibly territorial. Black people were chased out of white neighborhoods for not belonging, but so, too, were white people chased out of black neighborhoods. 
1994, I was chased out of an Irish neighborhood two blocks from my Italian neighborhood because I didn't belong there. Boston was not immune to racial tensions, but the thing I was still hearing about in 1996 was the horror of having to take a bus with strangers to a neighborhood far from home to sit in a strange school with more strange kids who were from a completely different culture. My family lived in the Italian section of Boston, and my mother didn't meet someone who wasn't Italian, maybe Irish, and Catholic until she was 15 years old. The prospect of having to go on a bus full of strangers to a neighborhood where she was not welcome to be one of the few white kids in a predominantly black school, this idea was daunting. Not to mention immigrants in my neighborhood didn't want their daughters so far from home, a cultural thing. Many of my mother's schoolmates were sent to Catholic school to avoid the need to move or the need to bus. The Catholic schools were overrun. She goes on to talk about a more uh, personal story about integration at her own school, which I'm not going to go into detail about because I feel like that's a little bit too much identifying information to go on here. But um, she ends by saying that now when she goes back to to her alma mater, the halls seem more and more colorful, which I thought was a good note to end on. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Boston. (laughs) If you walk around Boston, you can still still see uh, really clear hallmarks of the different cultures that settled different parts of Boston. Like they're very clear. This, this used to be an entirely Italian neighborhood. And in a lot of cases, it's still predominantly an an Italian neighborhood. Uh, But I had not realized how deeply those community ties ran and that it was to the extent that like this little insular, insular neighborhood was its own little thing that people were very protective of. Uh, without seeing it in the greater context of Boston as a whole, which I think probably most people not from Boston (laughs) think of Boston and also probably Cambridge as a thing, uh, even though there are lots of different insular communities all around the area. So thank you for sending us that note. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website. That is howstuffworks.com. You can uh, search the word radiation and you will find how radiation works. It goes into detail about how radiation is both dangerous and used to cure people's cancer. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, to find all kinds of stuff about the episodes that we have worked on lately, an archive of episodes that we uh, includes every episode we've ever done, show notes for the episodes that Holly and I have worked on. You can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 